You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. To Live and Die in L.A., which came out in 1985 and was directed by William Friedkin. It stars William Peterson, Willem Dafoe, John Pankow, Deborah Feuer, Dean Stockwell, Darlene Flugel, Steve James, Michael Green, Christopher Allport, Jack Hoare, and John Turturro. The genre would be neon noir crime thriller. Rick Masters is a counterfeiter. He makes his own money. If you can't come up with the front money, you're not for real. Richard Chance is a federal agent. He makes his own laws. I'm going to bang Rick Masters. They're on a collision course. One of them will live. Freeze! U.S. Secret Service! One of them will die. The City of Angels is about to explode. To live and die in L.A. The director of The French Connection is about to take you through the City of Angels in the fast lane. To live and die in L.A. Featuring the hot new score from Wang Chung. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. As a genre director, the late great William Friedkin was never one to shy away from extreme violence and or nudity. I mean, nobody just gets shot in this film. Their head gets blown off. There are enough squibs used in this movie to make Paul Verhoeven jealous. Buddy, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there are just not gratuitous sex scenes. There's Daphne from Frasier, Jane Leaves in her first role, making her screen debut in a three-way. There's frequent bare-assed Willem Dafoe, who is super menacing as Eric Masters, the villainous counterfeiter. Darlene Flugel playing the informant who could never quite commit towards wearing a full shirt. And there is a naked and proud William Peterson throughout the movie, standing at full attention. Yes. Friedkin just goes full throttle with this film. It was often referred to at the time of its release as a, quote, West Coast French connection. But this is more like a coked up West Coast French connection updated for the 80s. Now look, my man. I told you I don't have what you're looking for. So why don't you make it easy on yourself? Just shag your ass out of my crib. Now you be a printer. Go get some ink. And start printing some more of that shit. What's happening, fella? Yeah, you asshole. And yet beneath all the sound and fury is a pretty compelling procedural about two Secret Service agents trying to bring down the biggest counterfeiter in California. Peterson is genuinely good as Richard Chance, an adrenaline junkie bent on revenge against the man who murdered his last partner, and just two days before his retirement. Yeah, the guy even says at the beginning of the movie, Get too old for this shit. The whole character of Chance could easily drift into cliche, but Peterson plays him as someone completely devoid of empathy. 
He's not above fucking anyone else over to accomplish his mission. Look, this Cody is an associate of Rick Masters. Masters has been making a mockery out of you, me, and this whole goddamn system. That doesn't change the fact that he's on a no-bail hold awaiting arraignment. He killed my partner, man. The answer is still no. If I was one of your asshole cronies, you'd be spread-eagled on your desk to do this for me. Don't say something you'll regret later while also being disarmingly upfront about it. There are some extremely cold lines that he delivers to Flugel's Ruth, his lover and foreman throughout the film, which are just very matter-of-fact. How much do I get for the information I gave you on Waxman? No arrest, no money. It's my fault he's dead. Took me six months to get next to him. Got expenses, you know. Guess what? Uncle Sam don't give a shit about your expenses. You want bread? Fuck a baker. Peterson is believable and never goes full on Gibson, never gets crazy-eyed, just plays it matter-of-factly. And babyface young Defoe just kills it in this movie, definitely among his top five performances. Off the bat, as he slithers onto the screen, burning a painting no less, Willem Defoe's Eric Masters is creepy, smug, and ruthless, but also a really good artist who you just cannot help but admire. Is this my package? Look okay? You're beautiful. Oh, Mr. Jessup? Like your work? (laughs) And of course, to refer to Masters as the only real villain of the story... Well, it's not quite that simple. The story actually probably gets a bit too unwieldy in the third act. Having now seen this film several times, and I love this movie, I'm still not completely clear on how Dean Stockwell's attorney, Grimes, fits into everything that transpires. Also, the film abruptly ends on a sinister note for one character, which I'm not sure is completely earned. I got ripped off for the rest. You set us up, didn't you, Ruth? You knew that Chinaman was FBI. What? Are you crazy? Come on, don't shine me on. If you're going to start by bullshitting me, we're going to get off to a very bad relationship. What are you talking about? You're working for me now. That would be Vukovic, the seemingly by-the-book partner whom Chance ends up going through most of his investigation with. And Vukovic is played by the perpetually rumpled character actor of film and sitcom John Pankow. And while I did not completely buy the conclusion for his character... That is through no fault of Pankow's, as this was likely a career-best performance for him as well. Friedkin always loved to go balls out with his endings. But as with other films of his, there's sometimes some connective tissue missing to prevent them from being more effective. (coughs) (coughs) Still, one of the best films from a master filmmaker. Put your hands back here, you fucking asshole! I'm playing hat off! U.S. Secret Service. I'm arresting this guy for counterfeit. Freeze! Who are you? Secret Service. Uh, I just came in to take a leak. Come on. Morning. Let's go. Get the bag, Johnny. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. There's a score by England's own Wang Chung, which is now considered legendary, and for good reason. It's more than just a catchy synth beat playing behind the action. It's an active character in this film. 
Now, Miami Vice started airing while this film was in production, so I can't help but think that they were going for a more startling, bleaker-sounding version of the music that Jan Hammer composed for that show. Initially, I might have referred to this as a score in the vein of something from Harold Foltemeyer or Tangerine Dream from this era. But here's the thing. More than half of the tracks that we hear throughout the film actually feature memorable vocals from lead singer Jack Hughes. Never more memorably than the mid-tempo title track, which kicks off the movie as we watch a presidential procession drive through the City of Angels. So what we really have here is a soundtrack, and I can confidently say one of the best soundtracks of the 1980s. Several songs are a bit off-kilter, often changing tempo, and that's very much in line with the tone of the movie. And there are also no shortage of memorable riffs sprinkled throughout from guitarist Nick Feldman and Darren Costin, who both shine in a brief interlude which we hear early on in the movie as our, quote, hero. Chance is leading a siege on what they suspect is the main hideout of Eric Masters. This track is a true banger. It's called Black, Blue, White. Yet that one is still not my personal favorite. Tough choice, honestly, here, but if you had a shotgun aimed at my head, which is not an uncommon occurrence for most major characters in this movie, and I had to choose one, it would likely be the fast-paced, bass-heavy street anthem, Wait. This song introduces itself with a bizarre smattering of piano and xylophone notes as we see that unsettling image of Ruth looking back at Vukovic realizing that he's gone bad. And then the camera swoops around the city as the credits start to roll and that beat kicks in. It's a fittingly kick-ass capper to a kick-ass movie.
The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Oh yeah, speaking of Ruth. Yeah, it probably goes without saying that the female characters in this movie are very period appropriate, in that they are the weakest characters in the movie, unfortunately. Yes, there seems to be some pathos to Flugel's performance as Ruth, but she's never really given much to do except act frazzled while in various stages of undress. Now, there is some genuine intrigue to Master's dancer girlfriend, Bianca, played by Deborah Fuhr, especially the very mysterious way that her story ends, apparently driving off triumphantly with her girlfriend, played by that young Jane Leaves. And she has this fantastic otherworldly look at times, especially when you see her in full-on makeup about to perform. But alas, her character is given hardly any dialogue, and she stays generally pretty surface level for the entire movie. So yeah, not a great showing for the ladies in a Friedkin movie. And through no fault of their own, and of course not for the first or last time, with previous episode The Exorcist being a major exception. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. You see, part of what makes this film so great is how much detail is provided behind the main criminal enterprise driving the story. Counterfeiting. Early on, about 15 minutes into the movie, is what I would refer to as the standout sequence of the film, even though there are some others which come awfully close. Of course, I am referring to roughly eight minutes of just watching Defoe's Eric Masters meticulously crafting a large batch of fake $20 bills. We follow him along on every step, from photographing actual money, towards altering and drafting these designs onto a carbon original, to the coloring with various paints, to the printing, to some clever methods for ensuring that this paper doesn't feel like paper, but actual cash. There's no dialogue from Defoe in this scene, and he seems not only determined, but kind of joyful going through this arduous process. All we hear are the intricate sounds involved with each step, and more high-energy music from Wang Chung. This sequence is a true standout, which I can just watch again and again, and I have, even on YouTube. The music, the editing, and of course Defoe's sublime performance just sell this and make it a compelling sequence. We're watching a dangerous artist at work who loves his craft. This brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. And speaking of dangerous artists, did I forget to mention that there's also a car chase in this movie? Oh, just not any car chase, mind you, but what is very likely among the top five car chases of the 1980s, which was a great decade for car chases, no less. 90 minutes into the movie, it's literally 10 minutes of automotive insanity, 
through the LA River, nearby overpasses, and the adjoining freeway as we watched Chance and Vukovic desperately try to evade a growing cadre of armed assassins who were out to kill them, shooting at them, after an illegal money grab which went wrong. God damn it, we did it! Oh shit! You had me scared out of my fucking mind, man! You had me scared out of my mind! Ah! Sons of bitches! Is it the same guy? It's two different guys. It's two Chevys. What the hell is going on? Who the fuck are these guys? They're all over the place. Hang on. Hang on, Johnny! And the whole thing culminates with our, quote, heroes driving the wrong way on the freeway, dodging cars and trucks, speeding furiously towards them. It's quite the hair-raising set piece. And it says a lot about just how masterful that early Defoe counterfeiting sequence was that it even topped such a legendary car chase in my book. But when he was truly firing in all cylinders as a storyteller, that's just how freaking rolled. 13 years after the groundbreaking car chase, which he orchestrated for Breakout Smash, The French Connection, he had made it clear to his stunt coordinators this time around that he would keep this film's LA-based car chase in the final cut only if he felt it topped the climactic car chase from Connection. And I think it at least comes close. This movie is just filled with wild swings like that. From the suicide bomber sequence at the beginning, to the unexpected death of a major character towards the end to the iconic way that he shoots young Defoe off the bat, with the actor's then baby-faced sneer taking up half the frame, to some of the nutso dialogue that he gives my man John Turturro in one of his first on-screen roles, playing courier Carl Cody. I got caught carrying for you. Now it's my turn for some consideration. You have my word, you won't have to do the whole nickel. What does that mean? Grimes is the best lawyer in the state. It'll either be an appeal bond or... The sentence reduction. And the check is in the mail, and I love you, and I promise not to come in your mouth. To just about every scene in this movie featuring modern dance. Trust me on that. Yes, the comparisons to Miami Vice were to be expected, but at the end of the day, this was still a genuine original. One of the first of its kind. A balls-out L.A. crime saga which predated Heat by 10 years. For being a consummate ringmaster to one of the most memorable on-screen circuses of its decade, Billy Friedkin is the MVP. He's very good at finding access to those worlds. There's a weight and an authority about him. When he goes into those worlds, people open up to him. They don't think he's a tourist because they know Billy's heavy and he's serious about what he's doing. My rating for To Live and Die in L.A. would be four and three-quarter stars out of five. Almost 39 years since it marked a sort of comeback for Friedkin, after some big-time flops like Cruising and previous episode Sorcerer, which I still love, this movie remains a highly enjoyable, rewatchable experience that I wish was easier to find via streaming. It's out there, though, if you're looking hard enough. And right now, if you're looking to watch To Live and Die in L.A., it is only available to purchase on DVD or Blu-ray. Yep, right now it's only available on physical media, though that can change because I think it was on streaming for a little while. And that ends another Neon Noir review. I just learned that term. I like it. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.
White. I can hardly wait. 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 I can